Welcome back to Digital Health Unplugged, the podcast in which we take a look at what is making headlines in the world of NHS IT. I'm your host, Andrea Downey, and I'm senior reporter here at Digital Health. Hello, and welcome to Digital Health Unplugged. As always, I am your host, Andrea Downey, and today we're going to be talking about user experience of technology. On this podcast, we often talk about the benefits of technology and how it can transform healthcare. It's hardly surprising that a digital health podcast can be a bit pro-tech. But something we've not spoken about before is the importance of considering user experience when designing digital health services. And of course, it's really important because at the end of the day, it has to be easy to use. Otherwise, you spend a whole lot of money on something that's probably going to get overlooked. One organization that is putting user experience at the very heart of the services they design is Surrey and Borders Partnership NHS Foundation Trust. They have employed several design teams that are working across tech programs at the Trust to ensure that clinicians, patients and any other end users are getting exactly what they need from the technology. But I'm not going to give it all away. I have much better people with me to do that. Joining me today is Helen Potter, who is Head of Pathways and EPR Development at Surrey and Borders Partnership and Nitesh Bali, who is Clinical Pathways Product Manager for Digital at Surrey and Borders Partnership. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, guys. How are you all doing? Very well, thank you. Pleased to be here. I'm pleased to have you here. Delighted to be here, Andrea. Thank you. Excellent. Great feedback already, and we've barely done anything. (laughs) But I will will keep it going quite quickly because you guys have been very busy down at Surrey setting up all of this and also during a pandemic, which sounds quite busy, I'm not going to lie. So I'm going to get around to asking you about the programs of work and what the design teams are doing at the moment very soon. But first, I think it might be a good place to start talking about what user experience actually is and why it's so why it's so important when designing digital health technology. Um, So kind of open that up to both of you to start with. Why do you think user experience is so important? So for me, user experience is absolutely essential. If we don't understand how the user needs to use the system, we're not going to design the right solution. Ultimately, we need to understand what they're trying to achieve, what their current pain points are, and together co-design a solution that works, that overcomes those pain points and meets the objective that they're setting Mm. out to achieve. Without doing that, you you know, the bottom line is you're not going to get it right, as as in fact we have seen previously. So, um, yeah, it's absolutely essential. Yeah, absolutely, Helen. I I fully agree with you and thank you for your leadership um, at SABP. And uh, just going back to the basics, so user experience, what is it actually? You know, So user experience is important because it tries to fulfill the user needs. And these users include patients, families, uh, you know, the families of the patients, the carers, the staff. And co-designing is a methodology which helps us incorporate the user experience needs when we are designing or developing a product or a solution within the digital remit. And let's not forget, we are working at the NHS and we follow NHS design principles, which are inspired by the NHS constitution. And user experience and co-design are at the heart and soul of these principles. So it's absolutely essential, I would say, Andrea. Yeah, yeah, it definitely sounds like it is. I mean, the end of the day, if it's not going to work very well for the person using it, I mean, I know personally, I don't use technology that doesn't work very well for me because I just need it to be easy. And if it's not easy, I'm not interested in using it. I don't know if maybe I'm just being lazy, but I'm not interested in using technology that 
isn't straightforward and easy to use. Um, and I'm glad you also mentioned the the word co-design and also the fact that we're working in the NHS, Natash, because the use of user experience has actually been in the headlines a lot lately, um, particularly because NHSX launched a national survey to better understand the usability of electronic patient records, which I know is something that is going on at Surrey and Borders as well. Um, so they're basically just gathering information on how clinicians and people are using EPRs so they can get a better understanding of how they can improve them. It, the story proved really popular with our readers. So it shows there is a definite interest in user experience and co-design sort of from our readership. So I wanted to ask you guys if you think it's, you know, really important that the need for co-design is now being recognized at the top level. Absolutely. I mean, that is that goes without saying, um, um, Andrea. And uh, I would say initially when we started this journey, so this did not happen overnight, right? We had to spend six to 12 months, uh, 18 months trying to understand what the composition of uh, the teams should be, what kind of skills and experience and knowledge we need. And then slowly and gradually started engaging our different stakeholders. And again, you know, that includes our end users who could be patients or their families, but also our clinical stakeholders and subject matter experts. And Initially, there was a little bit of resistance because people did not understood or appreciated the importance and uh, uh, relevance of user experience and co-design because they were like, well, I have got this concept in my head. You know, why don't you just translate that on paper? Now, we did that in the past and we failed miserably, which is why we really wanted to implement the user experience design. And uh, part of that journey has helped us embed the benefits and uh, the techniques which we tend to use and uh, at the present time we have received a lot of appreciation from the trust uh, internally as well as from the external uh, stakeholders so you mentioned epr now we work with an epr solution called as system one which is part of the tpp organization and their director of strategy and communication um, uh, gave us a feedback that they have never seen such beautiful um, easy to use designs developed in their own software uh, package so we are getting recognition both internally and externally Andrea yeah well that's good news um, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, some of the stuff that's going on at Surrey because I am going to swing straight back to that now because um, Helen I know that you are leading the design teams on this which sounds like a very difficult job I'm not going to lie so I do think you're the best person to ask why Surrey and Borders did decide to have such a focus on user experience and co-design so I think, you know, before we introduced the design teams, we were working very much in a with a print two methodology. We would bring a, um, a group of people together with an objective to deliver a project. They'd often have competing demands, but they would sort of come together um, and, and form what I would call a sort of a pseudo team, uh, a team that wasn't really formed wasn't performing and perhaps had competing priorities as well so you know whilst this project team would come together it was often quite disjointed and and I think that very much showed in in the output as well um priorities were often shifting but actually we we were so set on one path we didn't shift and move with it um what we did with embedding user-centered design is not just that we also introduced an agile scrum methodology which allowed us to sort of move and shift put the user at the heart co-design engage but form a design team for a program of work so rather than just for one project actually what we did is is have this team form for an entire program of work which could stretch 
over you know potentially years um depending on what the what the piece is but obviously with multiple projects and multiple deliverables within each of those um but what it's done is is really created connection between the team itself between the stakeholders really developed an understanding of of what they're trying to achieve put the user at the heart you know co-design and have that joint ownership for um for what's being delivered so i guess that co-design essentially is also i mean i'm guessing here because i don't work in the nhs but i'm guessing it also does save time and money in terms of not having to go back and redo projects that maybe didn't work the first time have i have i got that right I think absolutely. And uh, let's not forget that healthcare journeys can be super complex. Okay. And we really need to take time to understand what we're trying to solve. And we can't really push the complexity of the system onto the people who are using these designs, you know, so we need to really appreciate uh, the context of use, again, going back to the NHS principle. So we don't just design our part of the service, Andrea. What we need to do is we need to consider people's entire experience end to end, which means co-designing or connecting with the subject matter experts and clinicians and people who use these services and render interventions to the patients, so whether it's uh, older adults or children, young people, it's really important to appreciate the end-to-end process. Only then we can think about a solution, you know. So it's it's really about shifting the mindset from a solution-oriented approach to an outcome-oriented approach. So how can our work improve the lives of people you know, and this people could include patients, carers, family, staff, either directly or indirectly. How can we embed that uh, ease of use and make digital an enabler of um, the services? So in our flow project, one of our deliverables, um, we received feedback from the clinician that it was saving them 45 minutes a day, which actually equates to around five weeks a year. So I think when we're thinking of cost saving, you know, there's some really tangible evidence of money that we're saving, time that we're putting back or giving back to the clinician to do the work, you know, the actual clinical work, that face-to-face contact, that driving forward quality care. So right from getting it right within the design teams has such a knock-on effect um, down the line and absolutely will be saving time and money. Yeah, that's an awful lot of time as well when you put that into context. Like five weeks is a long time in a year, really. Um, And Helen, You've actually led me very nicely onto talking about the programs of work that are happening in Surrey, because I think there's four design teams that you've hired. So I want to talk about what they're actually doing and like what, what programs they're working on at the moment and um, where the design teams are sort of going in the future. Um, so, Helen, I think you might be the best person to ask of that one, too. Okay, so we've we've got one design team that's focusing on our emotional well-being, mental health work, which is our children and young people's services. Um, and that's really trying to revolutionise the way we deliver care to, to that cohort. So improving access, um, partnership working, so working with third sector organisations. Um, there, there's a lot of well, a very ambitious programme of work that will extend over the next seven years, really. But suddenly we've got it mapped for the next two to three years. We have another design team that's looking at flow, um, which is our demand and capacity through the service and ensuring that people's journey, clinical journey through, that there's no blockers, there's no bottlenecks, that we've got that really clear 
and digitally enabled pathway through the system. Um, it, it's also looking at, you know, sort of preventing delayed discharges and so on. So we're really proactive in knowing what the next step is and, and working with, um, you know, with the clinical team and the end, and, and the service user to, um, to get the delivery of care right. Then we've got another team um, who have just started looking at our EPR architecture. So when we deployed System 1, um, we deployed one unit for many services. And, and really what that's done is, is hindered our ability to unlock the functionality that System 1 offers. Um, so we're, we're really just redesigning our whole deployment of System 1. So we're breaking out into a multiple unit structure enabling us to unlock that functionality and and really deliver um, a, a far more usable um, and enabling tool within our EPR. Um, and our fourth team is what I would call the a sort of response team, if you like, our core business team. So all those other pieces of work that come in that don't fit into that program are, are picked up there because obviously there's, there's always improvements needed in every area. So at the moment, they're working with our forensic outreach liaison service looking at digitalizing specialist risk assessments like HCR20 and making sure that those are clearly visible to, to all users within the trust. Um, and they're just moving on to outcome measures. So we're looking to create a solution for dialogue, um, which will allow use of the patient portal, AIRMID, um, and patients to actually complete those PROMs, patient-related outcome measures in their own homes leading up to the appointment and that data to be in the EPR ready for that session and, and to really be used to, to inform clinical practice. Wow. That's, that's a lot of work that's going on there. So it sounds like you guys have got quite a lot on your plate. Um, Natasha, I know that you're actually one of those, uh, well, part of one of those design teams. So I wanted to ask you what it is you're working on in the moment and also what impact you're hoping that's going to have on the trust. Sure. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so, yes, I am part of the team and uh, my team is specifically aligned with the emotional well-being and mental health services for children and young people in Surrey. And really, we are trying to work on making things better and more efficient for our uh, end users, clinicians, but also we are designing with compassion to help improve their lives, either directly or indirectly. So people uh, trust the NHS and we are very careful not to jeopardize that. So we are on a journey to design things that are reliable and secure, not just for our internal stakeholders, but also our external partners who are charity organizations of varying sizes and service specializations through the work we are engaged in. And the idea is really to wrap the services around a child or young person, you know, helping them with their end-to-end -end journey where they don't have to repeat uh, their problems and they get support really quickly and uh, in a most efficient uh, way possible. So that will have benefits such as, you know, uh, addressing frustrations of long waiting list, reduced burden on the admin teams within the SABP and our charity organizations, helping implement seamlessness in the flow of information from referral source through to the secondary care and then triage. Uh, it'll also help us with higher compliance and mandated governance and reporting, for instance. Mm. So have you worked with the NHS on something like this before? No, so I have been working with the NHS for the last two years, Andrea. 
for 15 years, I worked in private industry, uh, private sector, and uh, that includes clients like Facebook and Autodesk and uh, Canon and HP and Dassault Systems uh, and NVIDIA graphic companies. And uh, it's, it's really interesting. When I joined the NHS two years ago, I did not see a huge focus on the user-centered designs and user experience methodologies, whereas other organizations in the private sector have been following these principles. They have been training their staff. They have made uh, people heart of uh, everything they do. Uh, but uh, in the last two years at uh, SABP and within the NHS, I can see a real shift in the mindset and the perception and the trust as a whole is really putting people at the heart of everything they do all their strategies their policies their visions are influenced by this methodology they are embracing user experience methodologies and user-centered design they're training their teams and we are able to churn out really uh, uh, impressive and uh, user-centered products through this initiative yeah i think that's something that is often said I think about the NHS is obviously in a tech company it's sort of there's not as many loopholes to go through there's not as many stages so you can kind of just design but I think in the NHS there's obviously a lot more you have to go through because people's lives are involved Um, but also there's culturally a bit of a resistance to technology and new ways of working sometimes especially if that technology doesn't work well so I'm really glad that you've mentioned the shift in attitude and perception of technology so that really nicely leads me on to asking how the design teams have been received at Surrey and Borders and you know how has the work they're doing also been received by the end users so, I mean, I think it's been incredibly well received. As as Natasha alluded to earlier, I think there was a little bit of resistance in the early days. Um, you know, that that's certainly true. But now that people are seeing the output, the willingness to engage and the satisfaction levels after um, a product is delivered uh, have been have been very impressive. We've um, we've actually one of our um, products for Valparates has just been uh, made a finalist for the HSJ um, awards, which are happening later this month. So that's very exciting. So what we're seeing is some real recognition of the quality of the output, both within SABP, but but externally as well. Yeah. Um, sorry, go on. I was just going to say that must be really rewarding um, to know that the work you've done has been well received and that it's it's making a big difference for the end users and also the patients. Absolutely. Incredibly rewarding. And I think there's such a positive energy within the design teams. And, and that really is what sits at the heart of it. The knowledge that the work we're doing is having such a positive impact. Um, you know, it's it's a really, a really great place to work at the moment. Well, I'm really grateful that I've got an awesome manager who's really <laughs> on top of implementing these strategies. So she never dismisses any good ideas to help benefit our end users or our clinicians. And we've got amazing leadership within SABP as well, which is helping us uh, implement these practices really rapidly at the present time. Yeah. And I am going to circle back to that slightly later on in the podcast, actually, because I think it's very important that we talk about how to lead projects like this and how others can potentially uh, benefit from the successes you've had in Surrey. Um, But first of all, I wanted to sort of touch on the co-design of technology and how you've actually done that and what what you're hoping the design teams are going to be doing in the future. Um, Helen, I'm not sure if you're the the best person to ask for this as the team lead. 
So, I mean, they're definitely here to stay. Um, they've been so well received. There's no going back. Now we've seen what can be achieved by this way of working. Um, it, it's it's only growing. At the moment, we certainly have design teams um you know, assigned to a program of work as we get more programs of work. I mean, there's transformation going on um, all over the place. There's such demand at the moment. I can only see that growing. But what I would like to see happen is actually for us to align our design teams to each division, clinical division. So, you know, we would have a design team focusing on children and young people, a design team on working age adults, perhaps a design team on um, inpatients or learning disabilities. And I think what we've got at the moment is very much aligned to the programmes of work because, well, funding wise, that's sort of how we've managed to, to build the design teams. But I think going forward to really create those connections um, and really embed the design teams into the operational world and understand where these improvements can can happen um yes i'd like to see more alignment between the design team and our operational areas and i think uh, just to add to that i think the the process and uh, what Helen mentioned has had uh, a deeper impact on the trust you know so the uh, mindset is now shifting uh, from the focus uh, on a solution first approach to a discovery first approach at the present time, because we really need to understand the problem first uh, before we can design a solution for that. And in the past, you know, it was more solution oriented approach and now it's more discovery or research oriented approach, which which has uh, definitely helped. Yeah. Do you think that having a better understanding of user experience now means that the trust is more likely to make better decisions around technology that it needs in the future. I say better decisions like it hasn't made good decisions, but like, you know, more informed decisions about technology that they implement is what I'm trying to ask. I think that's a key word there uh, you uh, you used, Andrea. So with the discovery or the research-oriented approach, we uh, the trust and our stakeholders are much more aware of the problems at the ground level. So for example, tomorrow and day after tomorrow, my team is visiting the services to conduct contextual research, which is they'll be there to observe the admin teams and the clinicians perform their activities so that we can better understand their pain points, their processes, because often people uh, do a lot of things subconsciously and through one-to-one interviews, we are not able to get a nuanced understanding of exactly what is happening, what the pain points and frustrations are. You know, so when you're probably writing something, you know, you'll press a lot of uh, shortcut keys on your keyboard, but you wouldn't be able to explain that if someone asked you on a one-to-one interview verbally. So uh, research and um, contextual observation definitely is helping us uh, relay that information, those ground level insights better to our stakeholders. And perhaps that'll feed into better decision making is what I would uh, hypothesize here. And uh, Helen, do do you have anything to add to that? Do you agree to that? I mean, I I absolutely agree with what you're saying, but I I think we're already seeing it happen. And I'm just reflecting on um, on the session you had a couple of weeks ago with um, with our advice and assessment team, where a hypothesis had been made, a solution had been sort of mapped out, mm-hmm. and this was pre-COVID, yeah. so before we had really adopted this way of working, and we were revisiting that. And fortunately, rather than jumping straight in with the solution that had been defined, we, you know, we we sense checked, we went back and sort of validated that um, 
that hypothesis and quickly ascertained that this just wasn't going to work for the end users and and as a result we we have gone down a completely different path so um and potentially a a different uh digital platform so yeah it's absolutely impacting the decisions that we make platforms that we use um the priority setting for for what we're going to work on it's yeah it's it's influencing all of those areas yeah which at the end of the day is going to streamline the way things are done at the trust and that's always a good thing we we always want things to take a little bit less time and you know have an impact as soon as they use so that's great um i think so a lot of our listeners are probably now wondering how they can do this in their own trust uh, most of them are people that are already working within it in the nhs um so i'm going to ask you what your advice would be to them like is this something that would be easy for them to set up in their own trust or in other organizations and what was the process of setting up the design teams so i think the process of setting it up it it started quite small it certainly started with one design team it started with a product manager um and very quickly a, a scrum master and a designer I don't think we put enough value on the researcher in the early days. So my advice would be, you know, do invest in the UX research role. Um, We've learned as we've gone along and it's been a very rapid learning curve. We're certainly happy to share that learning with anyone that wants to approach us directly. Um, But what I would say is persevere with it you know the the results at the end are phenomenal it's been a slog getting to this point um and we're very fortunate that we've had the backing of our senior management team to allow us the chance to to really learn as we go and develop um but the the output is phenomenal i would absolutely say give it a go persevere with it be willing to to shift and adapt as you go because you won't get it right in your in your first attempt um it's something you do have to sort of grow into, if you like. Yeah. So how did you get senior management to back you? Because I think that's a prob- that's a pain point that a lot of people have, isn't it? Is getting management to agree that there's that we should be spending money on tech. How did we? That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we're very fortunate at Surrey and Borders that we have a very forward thinking and very ambitious senior management team. Um, So actually getting their buy-in was not challenging to this. I think they very much shared the same vision and and were really keen to to see this work. I, I really can't think of anything else to add to that. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I think that's good advice. I mean, it is just about... It's about selling the idea, isn't it? And hopefully we're reaching a point now, especially post-pandemic. I say post-pandemic, it's still happening. But, you know, I think we've learned in the last 18 months that technology is really useful. I think maybe that's a turning point for senior management to invest in technology, maybe, hopefully. <laughs> so, Andrea, there, there's, a, there's a couple of reasons, um, I think, uh, which influenced... Uh, how we were able to get the buy-in and uh, number one was really the appetite from the senior management within the trust uh, who are so who are vision setters you know so they they want to improve things for our trust they are fully qualified uh, very much experienced and they want to bring about this change and uh, obviously that is in line with the nhs constitution and nhs design principles and the ways of working of nhsx and the commissioners so there was a push from the top management but uh, 
because of the COVID period. So we, we were working with NHS collaboratively even before COVID hit us. But during the COVID period, you know, that gave us an opportunity to uh, uh, think and focus and uh, help train and reshuffle the teams and just realign them better to be able to see what works, what didn't work. And uh, the way we were able to communicate the results of our design activities was through show and tell where you know, uh, anywhere between 20 to 200 people would join and we could actually present what the processes and the output along with a live demonstration of the EPR products we have developed. And just looking at that, you know, the senior management were really happy. And uh, it's, it's not just up to the design team. The senior management is also proactively reaching out to uh, most of the people within the digital team. I mean, I had a call from my CIO the other day just to have a chat for half an hour. And they are proactively checking with individual members of the team. So, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a product manager and he's a CIO. Still, he took time to speak to me and understand what was going on. And then they were also able to feed back that, you know, guys, what you're doing makes me feel really happy. So I got that sense of satisfaction and achievement, you know, which makes, which motivates me to perform even better, yeah, you know, to deliver course. something even better. So I think uh, senior management is super motivated, which is how that motivation trickles down to our teams mm. as well. Yeah, it sounds like you guys have it sorted down in Surrey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so what would you say are the key lessons you've learned along the way with this program of work? So I think the key lesson that we learned very early on is don't underestimate the value in research. So, you know, that that phase, that discovery phase where you're really understanding the problem is, is essential to, to the rest of the process. So invest in your UX researchers. Um, I think one of the key lessons is setting the vision at the beginning and revisiting that regularly throughout. So what we've actually done is created a vision board. It is one page and as a at a snapshot, it tells you everything you need to know and really just aligns all of the key stakeholders and sense checks that we have all got that same understanding that we've got an aligned vision, focus and expectation of, of what is going to come out of this. And, and that's been really key on so many projects before. I've seen us get right towards the end and just realise that we've been talking cross wires um, on, on various points. And, and this vision board, it's probably the one artefact in, in the whole um, project that for me holds most value. So I would say introduce a vision board, make sure that that's shared and everybody is on, on the same page. Yeah, well, quite literally, if it's only one page, it sounds like Absolutely. a really helpful way to just <laughs> share the same information. Yeah, I think uh, one of the lessons is uh, that we really need to put people at the heart of everything we are doing and we need to really design with compassion. And we should be designing for outcomes, you know, because whatever we are designing should actually improve the lives of the end users uh, who can again range from uh, patients or their families or carers or staffs, either directly or indirectly. And let's not forget that NHS services are for everyone. So the design should be all inclusive, you know, it should help the clinicians 
manage their interventions with people with different physical, mental health, uh, social, cultural, or learning needs, you know, so and design can be a real enabler. And we really need to understand the end-to-end journey or the current state, you know, because if we don't understand the current state, it's so difficult to speculate what the future state is going to be. And then co-design, as you mentioned, Andrea, is integral to it because co-design is a methodology where we are able to implement those learnings which we are able to gather through research into the designing of prototypes and solutions. And again, you know, don't design a full singing and dancing prototype. Make, learn and iterate, you know, make small increments, share it with your stakeholders, collect their feedback, improve it, you know, create paper prototypes because, you know, it takes less time, but you're able to collect good feedback in a short span of time yeah that all sounds like excellent advice for our listeners to take home and you kind of beat me to my last question actually in answering all of that because my my last question to wrap up the podcast um which I do think we have touched on a lot in the 30 minutes we've been chatting but I did just want to ask you for one piece of advice if you could offer one piece of advice to any of our listeners to do with any form of user experience um what would your one piece of advice be Okay, so maybe make, I can make a start and then Helen can join us. So what I would say is that it's not a destination, it's a journey, Andrea. You yeah. know, user experience is a huge domain. User-centered design is a huge domain. Agile Scrum methodology, which we are using, are absolutely huge. It's a mindset, you know, and it doesn't change us uh, overnight. So it's a journey, you know, so enjoy it. Keep learning, keep experimenting iterate with things and try to make things open, you know, share your learnings. I mean, the reason I was fascinated about this podcast was because this gives me an opportunity to share our learnings as as a BP design team to help other trusts uh, uh, start their journey in the process as well. Yeah. And I'm glad I could help you share that. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Helen, what would your piece of advice be? Well, I think my biggest piece of advice is just do it, you know, take the plunge, have a go, have fun with it and enjoy reaping the benefits out the other end because they will certainly come. That's excellent advice. Just just get on with it. <laughs> I like that. And don't be afraid of failing, to be honest, you know, I mean, you will yeah, make yeah. mistakes, but that's a learning curve, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's all relative, isn't it? Like, Mm -hmm. you might make that mistake once, but you won't do it again and you learn from it, which is very important when we're talking about technology. Um, But I've really enjoyed this discussion. Sadly, it is all that we have time for. Uh, So Helen and Atesh, thank you so much for joining me on Digital Health Unplugged. Um, As I said, it's been fantastic having you on. And of course, to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget that Digital Health Unplugged is published fortnightly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. So you can give us a follow on any of those to keep up to date with what we're doing. And if you've got a podcast suggestion, we're really keen to hear from you. You can get in touch on podcast at digitalhealth.net. That's it for this episode. We'll catch you in two weeks time. You've been listening to Digital Health Unplugged. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more episodes or to keep up to date with what Digital Health Unplugged is doing, you can give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast channel. If you want to know more about Digital Health, our news and events, you can head on over to digitalhealth.net. 